Who read Mark 2 this week? Excellent. Keep your hand up if you found it worthwhile. <laughs> Everyone who put their hand up to read it said that it was worthwhile. If you didn't know, we're doing a series on Mark. And if, as you probably guessed, we're up to Mark 2. And I've, I've found it really exciting as I've been unpacking it the last few weeks because um, it has been alive and active. It's been exciting just to really dig a bit deeper into something um, not just skip across the surface, but to actually delve in and unpack something at a really at a deeper level and not rush. Does anyone remember the Bible version translation that I used last week? Oh, ESV, English Standard Version. Now, I realized, because I'm not using the ESV today, that I better explain why I did that. Because sometimes I make a whole heap of assumptions and it's not fair on people to just assume that, uh, that everyone knows what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. That's crazy to imagine that. So before we move on this morning, I just want to very quickly jump through something about Bible translations. And this may be really familiar to you, but for those that, that it's not familiar to, it just hopefully gives you a bit of an aha moment about Bible translations and, and how to engage with them. So first of all, there's a type of Bible translation called word for word. And if you imagine the original language has a bunch of words in Greek or Hebrew. And, and when they translate it, they're trying to match the words as best they can. There's another format, which is called thought for thought. And that's the idea that we're not trying to match the words, but we're trying to get the idea of what's going on. And then a third sort is called a paraphrase, where they're kind of trying to make the ideas relevant to a current environment, a current culture. Now, these aren't three distinct uh, types of translations. They actually blur together. And what you end up getting is at one extreme, a word-to-word example of where the, um, the words are very close to the original words. And at the other extreme, you've got paraphrase where the words are nothing like the original words and, and they're much more loose about the concepts of the ideas because they're trying to explain it in a way that people can easily understand. And you can see there, I've put a little bit of a, uh, a line across the bottom of some popular versions of the Bible. And you can see last week I was on the ESV, way down there at the word for word end. Why do you think I did that last week? What did we focus on? Words. We focused on Mark 1.1. And in Mark 1.1, I wanted to unpack the words that they actually used. And we had to actually dig a little bit deeper because the words weren't that obvious. They're words that we actually use all the time, but we had to actually bring them to light. So we've got a little bit of a challenge in this space because when you get down that end, it's harder to read. There's effort to read it. Whereas when up up the message end at this end, it's really easy to read. But the difference is that at that end, the words might be harder to read and and it's harder to process, but there's an opportunity for us to dig a little deeper. And that's what we did last week. Now, if I was to have a phrase like, I had a frog in my throat... At the word-to-word end, if we were to translate that to another language, someone may be confused to think I literally have a frog stuck in my throat, right? At the other end here, you could have any number of phrases that could represent that. And you go, well, it's kind of a bit of a slang phrase. So maybe in their language, we might use something a bit slang. But it then gets further and further away from what I actually said. Does that make sense? So, so all the different versions are trying to do something different. They're not actually trying to achieve the same thing. So the NIV actually tried to get a bit of a balance between word for word and thought for thought. They tried to get a little bit of a juggle between. The message 
didn't care about word for word. They're, they're not even pretending that they're going for word for word. They're trying to get the vibe of, of what's going on in a modern language. The problem with that is sometimes you have to use your own thought to um, extract what, what the person was writing. And so it's, it's often at this paraphrase end that people actually insert their own opinion of what is being tried to be said. So they're actually all uh, significant. I often use NIV and NLT, if you know me quite commonly. NLT actually started with a translation called the Living Bible right up in the paraphrase. And they went, let's try and make this a little bit more accurate to how the original was. And so they went back and there was, I think, 60, 70, 70 scholars that sat down and went, let's try and make these words a little bit more closer to the original and move into the thought for thought. NLT is easy to read, easy to, um, to, to talk. It's actually designed to be spoken out aloud. And so it's easy in a group context to read that and people to kind of, you know, you haven't spent all week looking at these passages. So when I put it up there, you kind of go, oh, I kind of understand what the NLT is saying. NIV is a little bit better to study. And as you head further down, they're probably better to study, but take more effort to do it. Now, which version's the best? The version that you're reading. So you can get stuck up with all this stuff, but if you go, I just don't read it when, I've, when you pull out the King James, then find one that you do read because it's better to be reading one than it is to be getting stuck on, on which version it is. You've got to be a little bit careful when you head towards this end because you don't want to start all of a sudden picking out a word and focusing on a word because it's not about words at this end. At this end, it's about broad ideas. Don't get too stuck into the nitty-gritty at this end. You've got to be a bit careful. But once you start getting into the middle and further at the other end, then you can start pulling it apart. Does that make sense? I just didn't want to um, run past it. And then all of a sudden, everyone's going, why? Hang on. What? I brought the ESV this week because Matt was using the ESV last week. What's going on? So don't get caught up with it. But it's really important to understand why we do these things. Awesome. This is where we ended last week. Mark 1, 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And in Mark, this is the first time Jesus speaks. This is where he's actually stood up and said, I'm on a mission. I've got a plan. I'm going somewhere. And I'm just going to briefly skip over the rest of Mark 1 because it's it's quite significant. And hopefully, if you read it, there's a whole heap of things that came out for you in that space. But Jesus starts to initiate this mission that he's on. And Mark wants to articulate the important things that he's putting in place to explain this mission that he's on. And what do you think the first thing that he wants to do to explain that he's on mission? Is it a miracle? Is it something amazing to show that he's God? Is he, is he going out there and preaching? None of this stuff. The first thing he does is he calls disciples. Um, And when I say first, it's the first in the order. It's not necessarily the first thing. Mark doesn't do things in order. This is really significant. Now, maybe it's significant because Mark's probably got Peter standing over his shoulder telling him what to write. There's a fair fair indication that's the case. So Peter wants to put in that he was called. Maybe that's part of the story. But it also shows that this was a significant part of what Jesus was doing. Sometimes we can focus on the miracles and the teachings, but Jesus, the first thing Mark wants to tell us that Jesus does is his building. He is actually building and teaching and equipping others. And this this discipleship making 
is the first place that we, we start hearing about Jesus being on this mission. And that's not insignificant. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. But this is where Mark starts. He then moves on and Jesus drives out an impure spirit. And he taught with authority and he said to the demon, be quiet, come out of him. He heals a whole bunch of people. At Simon's mother-in-law was sick. He healed many. He drove out demons and he wouldn't let the demons speak. He, he went off and spent a little bit of time on his own and prayed into a, in a solitary place. And he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching and driving out demons. And then he heals a man with leprosy. He was filled with compassion. That, um, again, this is where we get tricky. The, up this end of the picture, they use the word compassion, compassion. Down that end of the picture, it's a little bit more like rage. He's indignant. The word itself, the original word, is actually a little bit more irritated than compassion. He is he's a little bit frustrated with the fact that this guy has to put up with life like this. So you can see where the translations actually, you know, compassion in the middle and towards this end, but it's actually, he's, he's uh, irritated. It's a compassion with, uh, with passion. He touched the man. That is offensive to touch a leper. That's way out. This guy is off the rails. So Jesus says, I'm willing, be clean. And then he tells him not to tell anyone. And as a result, Jesus has to stay out in a lonely place. So we start to see a picture of Jesus' authority and intention. We start to see this picture of, of what Jesus is building. Who's he talking to? He's drawing people to him. He's teaching with authority. We can start to see his authority. He has authority over demons and over people and he's gaining influence. He has influence over disease and is preaching at the same time. But at the same time, there's this little bit of a tension that he's, he, needs, he needs his own space. And it's a really interesting picture. So what are people, how are people responding to this? Mark paints both sides of the picture. At once, they followed him. Now, we're going to come back to that word followed because that's really significant too. So when he called the disciples, they responded. They responded quickly. In the synagogues, they were amazed at his teaching. The demon said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So there is already this confirmation of what we, we saw last week in terms of his calling and, and the, the foundation on which we're setting this up. We can see that already playing out now. And the people went, wow, even the pure, impure spirits obey him. And in the whole region, news spread quickly. He then, when he heals many, the friends immediately told Jesus about Simon's mother-in-law. The whole town brought all the sick and demon-possessed. And even when he was trying to get away, the companions, the people with him said, everyone is looking for you. They're all looking for you. Why are you going and spending time by yourself? And with the man with leprosy, he begged on his knees. Again, very, very rude. This is completely against their customs. He has to stand 50 metres away from anyone else and call out to everyone to tell them that he's a leper. So what he does is he breaks that and goes up to Jesus and says, can you hear me? Heal me. What does Jesus do? He doesn't run the 50 metres he's supposed to under, under the Jewish customs. He touches the man. Amazing, mind-blowing stuff for these guys. And of course, even though Jesus told him not to speak about it, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So this is where we get to at the end of Mark 1. And it's really important to show the picture of momentum that's being created as we get to Mark 2. 
because there's, there's obviously, if, you've, if you're reading this, I'm sure there was a whole heap of things that you picked up as you, as you read through this, some fantastic stuff. But as we hit Mark 2, there's a couple of significant events that happen. A few days later, this is Mark 2, 1 to 5. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Now, it was probably not his home. It was probably Simon Peter's home. We heard before that they were at Simon Peter's place. The mother-in-law was sick and he healed her. And so they've come home probably to his place. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat the man was lying on. In those days, their roof would have been probably made out of mud. So it had a kind of a frame and then grass and then they would have put a layer of mud. And it was, it was kind of like what we would have as a porch. You don't go out to your porch, you go, and stand, you go and sit on your roof, maybe have a quiet time, maybe get out of the kind of you know, stinky insides and uh, get a bit of fresh air. You'd go up on the roof to do that. And so the idea was that the roof would have been a mud roof that was up there. And so these guys dug through the roof. I don't think they probably came prepared with spades and shovels and things. Um, So you can imagine that this would have been hard work because this is obviously strong enough for people to go up and sit on. So they're digging through this mud roof to get someone into Jesus. So there's no pushing through the crowds. It's packed. And so they get to the point where they're able to dig enough of a hole... I don't, don't know whether Simon was so impressed with this. Dig enough a hole that you can actually lower a person through it. So this is not an insignificant hole. And so they've lowered the person into Jesus so that, so that they can get this guy to Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Does that make sense to anyone? Didn't make sense to me. See a guy who's paralysed and his response is, your sins are forgiven. Now that's a little bit weird. And we kind of go, well, hang on, what was, what was his agenda here? We'll come back to that. Mark 2, 6 to 12 says, Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So now we're starting to unpack Jesus' agenda. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? And this is why he said it. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. So he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. So in their customs, they got this twisted idea. We've got to, be, we've got to tread a little bit carefully here because they got a little bit twisted into thinking that sin and sickness were attached. And there's, there's possibly good reasons for that. We don't know whether this guy was out on a bender and fell off the top of a building and got paralysed as a result of something he'd done wrong. 
it could have happened. His sin, the thing he did wrong, could have caused him to be paralyzed. We don't know. It's not important. Mark didn't tell us. What we do know is how Jesus responded to the situation. And he puts these two things in similar light. And if you get it around the wrong way, you could, you could possibly see that, that there's a link between them. But what he's actually trying to point out is, first of all, these two things are very hard to do. It's hard to tell whether someone's sins are forgiven or not. Someone can say your sins are forgiven, but who knows whether it worked or not. But what he does is he then says, I have the authority to forgive sins, and you may or may not believe that, but I'll show you something really impressive to show you that I'm actually capable of both. Whether you can see me forgiving sins or not, just by my words, I'll do something that you can see so that you can see what I say is true. So we've got to be careful that we don't put these two things too closely together, but both of them are pointing to the same thing. Why would you forgive someone's sins? Why would you want to forgive someone's sins? Why would he even offer that to this guy? Yeah? Yep. But now, why, why would we care about Jesus forgiving our sins? Is there any benefit in our sins being forgiven? Freedom. Our sins bind us, hold us down. They, they trap us in, I guess, a, a place of debt or a place of uh, shame or guilt. And so there's a, there's a benefit to having your sins forgiven. And that is, it restores your relationship with the Father, the one you've sinned against. So we're good again, we can commune, we can relate, we can live life with freedom. Why would you want to help someone being paralysed? Same thing, for freedom. So while they were twisted, as Dave said, and and had this idea that the sin might have caused the paralysing, they're actually both have the same agenda. Jesus was freeing this man twice over. (laughs) Fantastic. What an amazing thing to do to this guy is to free him of his sin and free him of his physical ailment. He's pointing, Jesus, is, is, his agenda is very clear and he's done it twice and said to these guys, watch and see what my agenda is. Amazing stuff. And they were amazed. And, amazed, and they were just praising God. It was phenomenal. In here, there's an interesting phrase. It's the son of man. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, we've got to unpack this a little bit because Mark uses it 14 times in Mark, and we may as well do it now as later. We learnt last week that the Son of God was in the image of God. Now, Jesus is talking to, about himself in the third person here, and we kind of find that a bit quirky, that he's talking about himself in the third person. But he doesn't refer to himself as the Son of God. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. And again, that's in in our language, we kind of go, that's kind of a bit weird. But in this case, it actually places Jesus in a position of purpose. Because if he is the son of man and he's in man's image and God sent him with a purpose, it's almost like he's reciting God the Father's strategy out loud. God the Father's intention was that the son of man, the one that comes in, in, in the image of man, God in human image is able to do these things. And we see in Philippians 2, 6 to 8, exactly the same concept when, when they explain Jesus. It says about Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So here, this son of man phrase is actually the position of a servant. God who's let go of his godness, his, his authority as a, to come as, as a servant to, to serve. And so he says, as the son of man, I've come to do these things. And it's important to understand that as we keep going. Okay, Mark 2, 13 to 18. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Again, English doesn't do this follow thing very well. We heard it before when he first called the disciples at the sea and he uses it again. This follow is not tag along. This follow is commit yourself to me. This follow is actually a follow of sacrifice, of, of trust. And it's one of risk and of cost. Now, tax collectors were despised, probably even more so than lepers, because a leper didn't choose his disease, but a tax collector chose his disease. <laughs> no offence, Jim. Um, <laughs> they, they were seen, because in the Jewish custom, you, you couldn't take taxes. That was, that was unfair. That was not how God designed things to be. So if you were someone who chose to, to, to this profession, then you were a sinner by choice. You weren't a, weren't a sinner because of an illness or something. And so this guy was hated, more so than we can probably imagine. And the sentence, uh, he was sitting at his tax booth, and the next sentence kind of shows the perspective that even Mark had. And as he reclined at, ta- at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So let's just, let's just put tax collectors and sinners together. They're, they're kind of the same sort of area. So, um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's the, even the phrasing of the sentence shows what, how tax collectors were seen. Reclining at the table, having a meal. Sitting at the table, having a meal. So he's having a meal and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Acknowledging or interacting with a a tax collector or a sinner is one thing. Having a meal with them, way over the line. He's messed things up big time. Now, we refer to these Pharisees. They were like a, um, like a political party, but not political. So it was um, a, a sect, a, a party of people that had the same beliefs. And there were a bunch of them. There was um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots. And um, there, there, were, there were heaps of them. They were the more well-known ones. And they say about 1% of the population were part of this party. So there was about 6,000 people that were part of this this party. And, and Pharisee means to be set apart, the ho- holy ones. So they were the ones that went, we're going to take the Torah seriously and we're going to fight for the Torah and, and, the, and the way that we're meant to live as Jews. So they weren't so much officials as they were necessarily people who followed this way of thinking, this belief. And they set themselves apart in that. So you would have recognised them by what they wore um, because they were trying to be righteous physically as well as in the way they talked. And so you can see the scribes were the, were the ones who, um, who were probably the teachers and the ones who studied the law. 
So the scribes are the Pharisees. So this is their leaders, if that makes sense. And they're picking an issue with him eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus' response is that he hasn't come for the righteous, but the sinners. And this is messing with them because this is really throwing them out out of perspective. In these two stories, there's two really important things I want to pick out. And they're the same thing. And it's the word saw. Jesus saw. In the first case, he saw their faith. Jesus saw the faith of the people that brought the person down the hole, dug the hole in the roof. In this case, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Now, we know in both of these scenarios that the place was packed. It makes it very easy that it was packed. So why would it be pointed out that Jesus saw these two scenarios? The significance of these is the difference that he saw them versus the way everyone else saw them. Because when you look at someone who is digging a hole in your neighbor's roof and there's heaps of people around, you could see them as selfish, you could see them as crazy, you could, you could see them in many different ways. But what did Jesus see? Their faith. He saw their faith. That stood out to him. That was significant to him. And what did he see in this case? Now, by the way, Levi is Matthew. Might be confusing. Levi is his, I'm going to get confused here myself. So Levi is his Hebrew name and Matthew is his Greek name. So they were pretty funky and had different names for, them, for, for the same person. The, the guy that was a disciple of Jesus and wrote the book of Matthew. So this is where we're heading. This is this guy's initiation was he's sitting in his tax booth and Jesus comes along. What, what a way, what an introduction. He's sitting doing the thing that everyone would mock him for, that would ridicule him for. Is that what Jesus saw? Clearly not. Clearly not. Because if he saw that, he'd be just like the Pharisees who said, stay away from him. He's a sinner. He hangs out with sinners. Um, He's an evil person. And yet, right here, he's smashing the ideas that they have. And he's smashing the ideas that we have too. Because we have a whole heap of preconceived ideas when we think about people around us. Think about the person that irritates you the most, right? I know there's someone in your head. It's not that hard. (laughs) Sally, no, it's not your husband. (laughs) Just think about it though. Think about that. And, and, And when you go in this circumstance... These guys weren't just someone that irritated them. These these were people that were despised. These were people that you'd spit on. These are people that you would have nothing to do with. It's not just they were irritated. This is people that you, you don't think have any worth. And right here, our concept of how to see is completely blown out of the water, as is the Pharisees. There's a really significant challenge for us in this place because we don't look at people the way Jesus does. We don't. Sometimes we try, 
But most of the time, we see them as, as on our side or on the other side, or, or um, helpful or unhelpful, or um, annoying or, or friendly and, and enjoy hanging around with them. There's, there's things that we see people with that's not the way he saw them. And the other thing was, he invited this guy into his space. Jesus was probably hosting this party. He invited him into this space before he changed. So he didn't even have an expectation on this guy or any of these sinners and tax collectors to do anything before he gave him a feed. Now, that blows our minds. That messes with us because we wait for someone to maybe say the right things. Maybe if they've hurt us, we wait for them to, I'll build a relationship as long as they correct what they did. There's a whole heap of things that we naturally do that he's blowing out of the water right here. We place expectations on people to change before we'll interact with them. If they come to a place of doing X, Y, Z, then I'll respond. Then they're worth investing in. Then they're worth my time. Like my time's more precious. And Jesus goes, no. The Sadducees got it wrong and, and we often get it wrong and he's saying, people are worth seeing, are worth seeing, not just looking at the outward appearance. They're worth seeing whether or not they're dirty, whether or not they're smelly, whether or not they're offensive in some way or another or not. The interesting thing is, and I'm going to jump, jump forward to the next bit because it ties in. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, now, by the way, the Pharisees probably fasted two days a week, um, like a Monday or a thir- and a Thursday, they would fast. It wasn't prescribed. It wasn't, there's only a couple of times that you have to fast in Jewish customs, but they went, we want to go over and above. We're going to fast two days a week. John's disciples fasted, obviously, um, in a regular pattern. Jesus' disciples weren't fasting. You could see they were having parties with uh, sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and, they, and then they will fast in that day. So he's not saying fasting's a waste of time. He's saying this isn't the season for fasting. It's time to have a feast. <laughs> yeah. Different sort of feast than they were expecting. No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. You know what? I've heard this referred to in a number of scenarios. And do you know what everyone refers to? The wineskin. It's not about the wineskin. That's what we see. It's about the wine. You don't want to waste the wine. We look at an old garment and it's saying, you've got a beautiful piece of cloth. Don't waste it on the old garment. There's something new. The physician, a good doctor, doesn't look at someone as sick. They're actually, they're, they're actually someone that's well that they need to help them get there. If a doctor doesn't see the potential in someone being well, there's no use helping them. 
It's only because they see the potential in that person. It sees the way, the value and significance in that. That's the only reason you would help them get better. Jesus is there to help a sinner, not because they're a sinner. That's the wrong part of the picture. It's because he sees them a different way than these guys see them. The reason you wouldn't put new wine into an old wineskin is because the wine is of significance. It's not worth wasting on the old wineskin. Put it in a new wineskin because then as it ferments and expands, they actually work together. We often think about the wineskin and go old, new, whatever. It's about the wine. It's about the value and significance. And what Jesus did is he started, we said before that he started with getting disciples. And where does he go to get disciples? Because this was weird too. A rabbi would normally wait for someone to come to him, put them through a bunch of of tests, um, see whether they're worthy or not, and then they would become their, their student. Jesus, this weirdo guy, busting all the traditions, actually goes out to where they work. He goes out to their fishing, where they're doing their thing, and he says, you want to come and be fishermen of men? He goes to a tax collector at the tax booth. Who does that? Who's crazy enough to go up to a guy that spat on and despised and hated and say, do you want to follow me? Do you want to be my student? And who's crazy enough to say yes? This, this is phenomenal things. And we've talked a little bit this morning about the significance of reaching the lost, of sharing the good news with those in our community and search to find. But this week I had an amazing revelation. I caught up with a pastor and he completely blew my mind. He was saying things that I'd already heard but, and I knew, but just the way he packaged it up and there was just this light bulb moment that ties in with this and ties in with an email that someone shared with me this week about Mark 2 and it all was just like, bang, this is phenomenal. We have this weird idea that we've got to convince people of something then let them respond and then they have value because they got it together. Jesus is telling us very clear, it's the opposite way around. They have value and a significance. He sees them while they're on their fishing boat, while they're paralysed, while they're a tax collector. He sees them. What's he seeing? He's not seeing a paralyzed man. He's not seeing a fisherman. He's not seeing a tax collector. He's seeing someone of significance. And if we ever want to disciple anyone, we've got to start with that place. If they are not significant already, there's no hope. If the doctor does not see any hope in healing someone, don't bother start with any therapy because it's only because you can see them as healed that you you invest in them in their healing process. If you don't see any significance in the new wine, don't waste the new wineskin. There's no use getting the new wineskin out at all because you had to start with the value of the wine before you bought the wineskin to pour it into. And this might sound simple, but we always talk about convincing people of something first. If I can convince them, maybe they'll get it. Maybe they'll understand. Jesus didn't convince anybody of anything. Did you notice that? There was no smart language that he gave the fishermen. He didn't didn't try and do miracles to the tax collector. He was already convinced by the faith of the the people to, to heal the 
paralytic. It wasn't even the, the paralyzed guy. It was his mates that stood out to him. And yet we have this barrier that we say we've got to teach, they've got to have a go, and then they might become something of significance. And Jesus here is saying, that's not how it is. Don't think like that. Every conversation you have with someone either speaks life into them and sees value in them, or it's um, a waste of time. Are they of value when you're talking to them or not? Because you decide that before the conversation happens, not at the end of the conversation. If you're deciding at the end of the conversation whether that person's worth investing any time in, you've missed the point. That's not Jesus' approach. His approach is you start with value, you start with significance, you start with purpose, and then you get to the point of, of unpacking that. Now, there's a tension here. We have this tension, and it's I am and I am becoming. Right? Did Jesus want Matthew to stay where he was? Did he? So he was still becoming. Yeah? There were some more things to do. But does Jesus see him as significant and valuable already? Does he see him as worthwhile? Does he see him as, as God's creation, valued? Yes, he does. But he's not there yet. Hang on. He's still becoming valuable. But he's already valuable. And we see these two things as something that butt heads that work against each other. Again, upside down. They actually beautifully go together. Let me give you an example. If a child plays basketball and also learns the piano. The piano, the parents said, I think this would be really good for you to learn. The basketball was something the kid went, my, my friends play it, I'd like to play. So they sit them down in front of the piano and say, if you play 20 minutes a day, you'll be good enough to play a concert one day. So the kid sits there and does his 20 minutes. Meanwhile, he wants to be out playing basketball. Why does he want to be out playing basketball? Because he's Michael Jordan. He is Michael Jordan and he wants to go out there and he's dreaming and playing and imagining being Michael Jordan. So he's out there shooting hoops. And all he can think about for that 20 minutes on the piano is when can I be over this 20 minutes so they can go out and play basketball? The two scenarios, one is being told, know what to do first and then you will become. The second one, he's starting with becoming. And do you know what he does? He wants to practice more and more. And he realises there's things he doesn't know. So what does he do? He jumps on YouTube and starts looking at clips of how to be a better basketballer. No one told him to do this other than he believed he was a basketballer first. He was a basketballer. Yet with his piano lessons, he didn't start as a piano player. He started at someone that needed to know how to do it first and maybe one day he'll be a piano player. He's not playing out of a place of passion. He's not playing out of a place of dreaming of, of being on a stage or, or making amazing music. He started with a place of having to know what the right thing to do is and maybe one day he'll make it. And this is where there's actually a beautiful place I am and I am becoming. Those two things actually work beautifully together. They're not a tension. They actually work in harmony. And these are some brilliant examples of that. 
I am and I'm becoming. I am well and I'm becoming well. That's why you need a doctor. You need a doctor because you are already of significance and you are becoming, you're becoming healed, you're becoming whole. The new wine is already new wine, but it still needs something around it to cultivate it, to, to, to ferment and become even tastier and more alcoholic. The new, sorry, the new clothes, you don't invest the new material into the old cloth because a new material, it's not yet a shirt, but it is a shirt. It's becoming a shirt. You don't sew it onto the old, old um, cloth because that's done. This is new. And so we have this tension. I remember this week, and when I was in probably, I don't know, year eight, year nine, I, I enjoyed my tennis. I love playing tennis. And I went to McDonald's squad training. So there were two coaches that went around the country trying to get glean the next generation of tennis players. And I've, I wasn't there, but I enjoyed it. And so I went along with maybe 40 other kids. And we, we had this training session where they ran drills and they ran, they ran exercises and went for a couple of hours. I only remember one thing from that two-hour session, and I remember it vividly to this day. One of the guys said to me, he stopped what we were doing, and he said, have you ever played tennis on, on, a, on a grass court? And I went, no, I've never played tennis on a grass court, always on, on asphalt or onto car. And he went, your style of tennis would be really good on a grass court. You'd, you'd actually you'd play really well on a grass court. He saw me. 40 kids. I was not selected. I, I, you know, I wasn't in the, the best of the, of, the, of the crop there. But he stopped and saw me. And to me, that was phenomenal. I've never played tennis on a grass court since either. I've never played. But the fact that he stopped what he was doing paid attention to me and saw something in me that I'd never seen before, blew me away, made my day. I didn't care whether I was going to make the McDonald's squad or not because I'd been seen. Not because I had it together. He'd never seen me play on a grass court. In fact, I wasn't even in his top crowd of people to select for that day. But he paused what he was doing for long enough to speak something of significance to me and value to me. And I remember that today. I remember very little about my tennis coaching, but I remember that because he saw me. What did he see? Was I the ultimate tennis player? No, I was and I was becoming. Does that make sense? I already was a tennis player. He treated me like a tennis player. He saw significance in me as a tennis player, even though I was still just becoming a tennis player. And that's what Jesus blows the water out in in this scenario. I, um, I know someone that uh, had a Series 5 BMW and um, filled it up with petrol and it was a diesel. Do you know what happens when that, that happens? It's a new engine. That's it. New engine. And I can tell you there were some tears. They weren't very happy at all. There's another really important thing here. When we talk about these things, there is no compromise. There is no halfway. There is no hybrid. There is no mixing. Like trying to put petrol in a diesel engine, it does not work. And in these pictures, Jesus is painting something very clear to those around him, and Mark is trying to communicate that to us. You don't put 
new wine in old wine skins. You don't put new cloth on, on unshrunken clothes. People who think they've got it together don't bother with a doctor. Again, this is very confronting to us. We try to fit Jesus into our lives. We try to make a hybrid between the culture that we live, the things that, have, that the world values, careers, houses, security, family. And as we'll see as we unpack Mark, there is no hybrid. There is no halfway. There is no blending. He doesn't say put the new wine half in the old, half in the new and see how you go. Jesus is really stirring the pot here. He is really irritating these people. He's agitating. He's he's confronting them. Because what he's saying is, I see significance and value, but there's no halfway. There is either value or there isn't value. And this is hard for us to take. This is hard for us to digest. Because we want to water it down. We want to say, my circumstances are hard. That person, Matt, you talk about annoying. You don't know what annoying's like. The person that came to mind is different to the people you're thinking of. We try to come up with a way of massaging this stuff into something pretty and nice that fits into my life. And Jesus says, I'm not doing that. I want to blow it open. I want to do it in a new way that's phenomenal. And do you know what he does in every single circumstance? He does it in community. There is not one situation here that is talked to someone on their own. Have you noticed that? Every single time he does it, there's a crowd of people that bring, there's, there's people on the boats, there's, he's, he's even talking about a wedding feast. He describes the situation like a wedding feast. All of these scenarios are done in community where A, he's accountable, but B, he's building his disciple-making culture. This is really challenging stuff and hard for us to digest. But I think that it's something that as a church culture, we want to make sure we don't sell for second best. We don't try to do the hybrid. We don't try to say this person's more valuable than this person. This person's worth my effort. This one's not. We want to keep each other accountable to this. If you see me treating someone differently to somebody else, if you see me showing favoritism, pick me up on it. Because he didn't, so why should I? But at the same time, if we each don't see Jesus in each other, because everybody that has accepted Jesus as, as their Lord and Saviour has that deposit. So guess what? You might say they're just becoming. No, they're not. They are and they are becoming. So that's how we see each other. We see each other with significance, with value. We see the people we interact with outside with significance and with value. That is his agenda for miracles, for healing, for teaching, for getting disciples, was about creating value, but recognising value that was already there. We can't play favourites. We can't water this down. We can't stop and say, I'm too busy, because... This is the agenda of our lives. Recognising value in people and helping them see that in themselves. 
You think you need to be taught how to be a disciple? You need to seek value in people. If you get that part of the puzzle, that is the core of what, what Mark has already unpacked, what Jesus started his ministry doing. He saw, he saw people and he responded to them with the Father's heart. Jesus is irritating. He's an annoying guy. He wasn't hanging out with these tax collectors and, and sinners because, uh, because they had the best food. He saw value and significance in them. And he was heading towards a cross where he was going to pay the ultimate price because of the value and significance in people. Let's pray. Jesus, you do irritate us. Lord, I'm not going to deny that. Lord, you are confronting. You're an agitator. You're a pot stirrer. And you don't, you don't shy away from that. You're not ashamed of that. And yet, Father, I pray that in our struggles with that, Lord, you, you would be gracious to us. Because I know you see us as we are and as we are becoming. You see us already with your Holy Spirit's empowerment, with being sons and daughters of the living God. Lord, you see us as significant. And yet, Father, you also don't want to just leave us in that place, but you want to be close to us. want to live out what it's like to be a father and a son, a father and a daughter, where you get to see the child becoming the man. And yet you want to be close to them as they do it. See the daughter becoming the woman. You want to journey with them, seeing that already in them, seeing their potential, seeing the hope, seeing the joy and the peace that comes from knowing you. Father, I pray you'd continue to arrest us. Father, I pray you'd continue to stir our hearts, to agitate us. Lord, we don't want to settle for today. We don't want to settle for a hybrid, Lord God, because we know it doesn't work. It's like putting new wine in an old wineskin. It's like putting petrol in a diesel engine, Lord. It was never meant to be that way. Lord, we pray that you'd help us see others the way you see them. I pray, Lord, this is, this is um, not comfortable, but continue to irritate us, Lord God. Continue to irritate us to a place of significance in people's lives. Lord, I pray you would you would help us see the harmony with the being and the still becoming. Jesus, I pray that we would see you as our teacher, as you as our example, and we would follow with all our hearts. We thank you for showing us the right way. Help us, Lord, to be and to be becoming as you lead as you guide, as you teach and as you equip. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.